The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. All right, as I mentioned, um, we have now returned to the book of James, and it's a, it's a bittersweet engagement in terms of uh, we, we've labored in this book for some, uh, right about nine months now, um, that we have been uh, pressing through and trying to uh, understand and draw out its principles, precepts, and truths and put them to action. And so I'm very grateful for this, uh, this journey and that we've been able to, to walk through it together. And, and it's fun, the further you get in the book, the more you can start saying, as you know, and we draw back on things, we draw back on things. You can't do that if you just drop in. Uh, so that's, it's been a, a sweet relationship and one that I, I hope has been encouraging to you. Now, as we come to this uh, returning to verses uh, chapter 5, verses uh, 13 through 18, and then 19 and 20, I just want to remind you of some, uh, something you may be familiar with. Hopefully it wasn't too disheartening or, or whatnot to remind you of your high school days, but some of you will remember um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, famous book, uh, obviously, um, well-known in our circles in terms of uh, English literature, but The Scarlet Letter, published in 1850. It's really become a, a staple of high school literature, at least in, in my experience from, from my time and seeing my own children uh, going through the, the high school literature process. And one of the things it does, I'm sure it's great literature, and I, I'm not really in a place to stand and uh, evaluate that as, as some of you might be, but one of the things that I can say it does extraordinarily well is it puts the dis- it displays, it puts on, um, it puts before us the physical destructive nature of unrepentant sin. Because as we, as you're familiar, and hopefully I haven't spoiled the book for some of you, but it's okay because you'll have to read it anyway. But one of the story's primary characters, a supporting role to the protagonist is he's notably ill. He's not well, and it it's becomes painfully obvious as the time progresses. And over time, the reader discovers the painful association of his secret to this physical struggle, namely his sin and, and the way it's impacting him. So the character has concealed his moral failure under a shroud of holiness, and his sin was just destroying him. And sin will do just that. And we didn't have to read the Scarlet Letter to observe that. James has already made that very plain. He's already established that much in chapter 1 where he writes in verses 13 through 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. Now, you may be wondering now if you've been walking with us and you're not only a student of James, but you're familiar with what we covered two weeks ago. That's interesting point of connection. And it's true that sin will lead to death and even physical matters and obstructions at times. But why would I introduce a discussion of what is often a relationship between sin and physical ailments when I've already established the nature of our passage, specifically back up to verses 13 and following, the nature of calling upon the elders is that one might be strengthened in their time of profound spiritual weariness? Well, it's because James will continue past what we will soon finish in verse 15, and then he's going to introduce us to the next engagement and its two commands with therefore, or an introducing of the continuation of his argument in view of what has just been established. So there's a relationship to how we understand the calling upon the elders, their praying, and the other actions associated with their praying, the saving of the one who is sick, and now a pairing of commands, namely of 
that of confessing and praying, so that, or for the purpose, that you'll be healed. So I wanted to reintroduce what we've already discussed to refresh that what we talked about in verse 15, you have to have some measure of consistency now coming to verse 16. So in other words, what are we looking at here? Well, we have to reconcile the language of praying, confessing, saving, forgiveness of sin, and healing. How do those intersect? How do we understand the relationship of those things? And with this in view, I would propose that James is going to be extremely consistent. He is all throughout the book. You know, a major criticism of James is he just, he, he kind of cobbles these arguments together. And even, even good faithful Bible teachers and commentators, when I came to verse 19 and 20, I said, wow, it's, it's, it's just a, such a beautiful continuation of 5, 13 through 18. And yet my friends are saying, oh, and yeah, he just tacked this on the end of the book. He, he didn't tack anything anywhere. It's all a developed argument. And so he's going to be extremely consistent, if nowhere, within the same immediate passage. So verse 15 to 16 will be consistent, extremely consistent, especially when they are part of the same textual unit and are joined by therefore. So I'm making an argument. Therefore, in light of that, I'm going to continue with another argument. So therefore. So while we can separate the sure association between sick and sin in verse 15, we cannot in verse 16. And so part of my argument last or two weeks ago was that there is that clear separation. If we didn't have that, if we didn't have that, and there's a really good commentator on this, Spiros Zodiades, he kind of erases that. And once you erase that, boy, you can have really great consistency and say sin and sickness are combined in a Nathaniel Hawthorne-like fashion, in a fashion that we also see in other circumstances. But in verse 15, they're separated. In verse 15, it's if he sinned, they'll be forgiven. So it's a, it's a secondary matter. But in verse 16, there's a matter of confessing your sin and being healed. And so how do we reconcile that? Because if it is a physical sickness that is being spoken of in verse 15, then it would appear to be of a like nature to, again, what Hawthorne has so masterfully illustrated for us through his story. Because there are times that sin and sickness naturally are associated with one another, and we're potentially pressed to this conclusion because of this language, again, in verse 16, confession, prayer, and being healed. However, if verse 16 speaks to spiritual restoration, which I believe it does, then we not only have the continuity that I've argued can be developed from the book as a whole, but now also can observe it within the immediate context as well. A continuity that will carry over to the final major section of the book as well. So, with a view to restoration being one of a spiritual nature and not a physical illness, let's read our passage together. And because of the, the intimate nature of the association with the final section of the book and the fact that we're going to press through to it this morning as well, we're going to go ahead and include it in our reading as well. So we're going to read the second the like section, 5, 13 through 18, and then the final section, verses 19 and 20. So we read as follows, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick or weary? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick or weary and the, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the earth produced its fruits. My brothers, 
If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, because of the amount of ground we need to cover today, I'm not going to be able to to fully develop my argument for why this is a matter of severe spiritual weariness and not a physical sickness. I, I did that two weeks ago when we were last in our text, and I would encourage you to review that message for a fuller treatment of the matter but I hope my introduction shored that up for some of you, at least as a a refreshing primer that we're looking at spiritual weariness and not a physical sickness. And again, if you're just coming to the text today, you can follow the larger argument now, namely that James has directed those who are spiritually weary, those who have exhausted themselves in their pursuit of, of holiness and faith and faithfulness, perhaps even looking at the catalog of James's um, a imperative, command, intensive book, and just they've tried. They've tried to bridle the tongue. They've tried to exercise pure and undefiled religion. They've tried to persevere and demonstrate faith through works, and they're struggling. And they're struggling to the point where it's not just approaching another brother or sister in Christ. It's to the point of they can't, they can't persevere well, and so they've called upon the elders, and the elders then minister to them in their weakness, with the sure outcome of their being saved, namely restored or made whole. And so it's a unique situation. It's not just, I've had a bad day. I'm going to call the elders together and have them pray over me. Now, this is a, I've labored, I've toiled, I, I'm, I can't persevere well. I'm, I'm exasperated. And then they call upon the elders. And the beautiful thing about this and the contrast that it provides to the, the, the conclusion that it's a physical sickness is the guarantee they will be saved. And we don't have to put any kind of qualification like that on there and say, well, maybe one day, or yes, when they see the Lord. No, it's, there's an expectation that you will be made whole, that you will be restored, that you will be strengthened. And such is the nature of this unique expression of prayer from the elders and that ministry expressed through that regard. Now, picking up where we left off, we recognize that the weak or the weary are only commanded to call upon the elders. So it's not their charge to do anything else. And that's, there's a lot of hurt that's been introduced here because uh, there's various uh, convictions and positions that would say, well, it's, it's physical sickness and it's physical weakness and it should be prayed over. And the reason that it's not resolved is because you lack faith. Well, you know, if you want to criticize somebody for lacking faith, the charge for the weak and the weary is to call upon the elders, and the faith of the elders and their praying is what carries them through. So we need to be very careful. There's been a lot of wounds unnecessarily inflicted here, unintentionally so. But again, their command, the weak and the weary, their only command is you call upon the elders, call out for help within the local fellowship. And in their condition, this is all that is required of them. The elders of the local church, in turn, have a different charge, and they're, in turn, commanded to pray for them so that they will be restored. It's expected. When, they're, when you're called upon in a light capacity, when they're exasperated, exasperated, exhausted, they're utterly spent, come and pray and minister to them in their weakness. And this outcome is sure, the saving, the restoring, the making them whole again. It's not going to make everything go away, but it will bring them and strengthen them enough where they can persevere to fight and grow and continue on. And their praying in faith for the spiritual weary, again, will accomplish that restorative work because as James will soon emphatically press upon us, why? How can we have that guarantee? Well, he builds it out and he basically concludes with this is why you can be sure because prayer is powerful. And it's a really strange thing that when we talk about what are you struggling with in your, your present Christian walk or what are you struggling with as you grow in grace? Well, 
I struggle to pray as I ought. Well, we're really shorting ourselves. We're really shorting ourselves in what God's commanded and the means by which he would have us to be strengthened and successful in a lot of our pursuits of holiness, growth and grace, and perseverance. So the prayer of the elders offered in faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord who is the acting agent in this matter. It's not the elders that are acting agents here, but the, excuse me, the Lord himself, he will raise up his weary child. As such is the nature of the good shepherd who not only goes after straying sheep, but binds up the wounded. This is the Lord's work and he will accomplish it. And that's part of the reason, that is the reason why we can be so confident in it. But... What if this language of the elders praying over the sick, anointing with oil, and also sins being forgiven? And this is really where we left off last week. So we emphasize this, this ministry of prayer by the elders, uh, caring for the weak, the wounded, and otherwise. But what if this, this praying over them, the anointing with oil, the sins being forgiven? Well, the elders praying over the person may or may not include some physical posturing. I don't have a problem with either conclusion on that, but it appears to me to be more of a matter of expressing the intentionality of their service to them. They're weak, they're weary, and they're coming over them, as it were, and they're, they're encompassing them, they're providing that uh, measure of authoritative care. And so there's that praying over them, and then they've been called upon this brother, excuse me, called upon because this brother or sister is in need of someone being strong for them in their weakness. And as to the prescription of the anointing this weary believer with oil, well, a lot has been said about this. A lot has been wrestled through, and a lot of practice has been trying to, how do we we fulfill this? What do we do? And with this, again, there's various measures of confusing conclusions, some conclusions that are um, well-intended, some that are more peculiar. It's a really hard thing. If we just parachuted here and we read that verse, we might think, well, we have to do something. What does that look like? Well, some of the most popular conclusions see this as either a medicinal application, such as we observe in the parable of the Good Samaritan. What does he do when he encounters the man who is nearly beaten to death? Well, he, he binds up his wounds and he pours oil and wine on them. And so some have concluded, oh, this is a, more of a medicinal application, potentially. They're, they're weak, they're weary, they're sick. This is a, a caring for them in a, in a more physical, tangible regard. Others see this as a more formal anointing which is a range of possible applications ranging from a formal setting of this person aside for what is effectively miraculous praying to the oil being some form of supernatural agent in the healing of physical ailments. And so there's something to that process of anointing, pouring oil over them. And again, is it a, is it a covering of the head? Is it a dabbing on the forehead? There's a whole range of things that people wrestle with trying to, and that's the spirit behind it. And don't forget that trying to determine what is best practice here, because it's clearly powerful. It's clearly effective and it's clearly commanded. So what ought one to do? And again, as we develop this, and even as we discuss it in the second hour, if you're here and want to wrestle through it some more, um, I want to uh, be clear that we're not picking fights here. There are people wrestling with how to understand this. And I take what's effectively the least sensational and the most simplistic position regarding the oil here. And it's not because, well, that's my temperament. It's because I think that's where the text takes us. But there are good and faithful people who have concluded otherwise. So we're not here to mock or dishonor them, but to wrestle through what and how do we understand this application of oil in the context of praying and restoration. And we're going to wrestle to what I hope is the best conclusion. So with this in view, I would propose that this anointing with oil is quite close to the medicinal conclusion, but not quite. So it's close to it, but not quite, particularly as this position has been reasonably challenged for the oil lacking any overt medical application outside of moisturizing and providing a measure of comfort. It's not that um, the oil has some kind of, uh, again, some recognized 
unique medicinal properties. So that's been a little bit set aside, but there's still something to what the oil is used for. And a soft critique brings me to, um, but uh, this, that soft critique of it's not medicinal, but it can be helpful has led me to where I think James is taking us here. Namely, it's an anointing in the sense of pouring oil over someone, but a rubbing of oil on the person as one would when doing, uh, when massaging an injury. So I was overhearing um, Andre was doing yard work yesterday, and he uh, is suffering accordingly. And there's a reasonable grounds in which sometimes you'll massage a muscle, right? You'll, you'll kind of work it out. And there's a lot of times, historically, all the way through the present, people will apply oil and that just kind of massage the, the, the wound, as it were, if it's muscle or otherwise. And I would argue that's exactly what James is getting to. But we need to recognize how is he getting there because we're not a physical sickness and I would argue it's also not a, a physical treatment as it were. So just as this is not a physical illness that's being tended to, so also this is not necessarily an actual massaging of injuries. Rather, it's merciful acts of service that targets the wound, that comforts the area of infliction, and it comforts the area that's been hurt. It's acts of compassion that make the moment of suffering more bearable it doesn't take it away. It's not kissing a boo-boo, as it were. It's massaging the muscle. It's massaging the injury and relaxing it and being compassionate in your care. And it's more of a totality of care. You're ministering in prayer and you're caring for the very uh, weightiness and burdens that they're carrying through this process. And so this is an expression of compassionate and merciful care to the weak. It's the opening of one's home, the providing of a meal. It's giving the weary rest, all of which I would say are expressions of hospitality, which you may well know are embedded in the qualifications of eldership and expected broadly of the church. And so we know the elder, those who pursue desire eldership, it's expected that you'll exercise hospitality. And it's also recognized in 1 Peter that we are to be hospitable to one another and this not grudgingly. And if you think such matters are, are trite or are too simple, like, well, that, that kind of takes really anything exciting out of the equation. Well, then I would say there's something, um, are, are we going to argue that there, there, there's something superior to, to pressed olives having mystical authority? I think that's an unnecessary conclusion. And also, I would say, if that sounds too simplistic, if it sounds like, well, I don't know, then I would wonder, one, have you ever been weak and weary and cared for? That'd be one question I have for you. Because if you've been weak and weary, you know the grace extended toward you when someone cares well for you in, a, in the holistic sense. People say, I'm praying for you, and you're, you're grateful for that. But then they minister to needs, simple, basic needs. And then I would also ask, have you ever experienced hospitality, either in giving or receiving? I think you would recognize the gentle kindness of someone bringing a meal, washing clothes, running errands, watching your kids, or simply giving you somewhere to find a restful reprieve ministers to a weary soul in powerful ways, especially to the spiritually weary who have run their races as hard as they can, and they're tired. They're tired. So they call for help. They call for the elders to come and pray for them. And this is not abdicating their responsibilities. Rather, I think you should view it as an Exodus 17, where Aaron and Ur are helping Moses with his weary arms. As long as he held his arms up, what happens? Well, Israel prevails in battle, right? But you ever held your arms up very long? Try doing it for the rest of the service. You won't last. And it's not because it's me. If anybody was up here, you wouldn't last. Um, but what I would propose is this is a like service. It's the accompanying service of anointing the, excuse me, it's, a, it's of a like nature of anointing the weary with oil. It's that ministering to the whole person. 
It's recognizing that if you're spiritually weary, the, the likelihood of you needing that tangible care in other areas is very high. And it's, again, it's not going to fix things, but it will provide compassionate care. Now, as to the matter of sin, well, James states, if, again, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. It's plain that sins are not viewed as the necessary source of their weariness and worn down disposition. Sins may or may not have contributed to their condition, but in this time of service to the downcast, spiritual warfare, excuse me, welfare is naturally explored from both the individual's self-examination and the counsel of the shepherds to mortify anything that they've held to, either before or during this season of struggle. And so if you're going to call upon the elders because you're, you're spiritually weary and you're, you're exasperated and you can't persevere as you ought to, and then it's a good time to self-examine, right? It's a good time to say, is this sin? Is it providential circumstances? Is it outside influences? Or is it sin? And when you examine your heart in that regard, if you have sins, you, what do you do? You confess and you repent and their sins will be forgiven. And if the elders are approaching you, one of the natural conclusions we're going to ask is if, what's the nature of your circumstances? Are you, are you eating, sleeping, exercising? Are you, are you mortifying sin? Are you, are you dealing with things? Are you harboring sin? Has someone in, um, been influencing you in a, a harmful way? We're going to ask a, a litany of questions. We're not just going to come in and be like, okay, where's the patient? We need to pray. Somebody get some compassion in here. We need to examine the condition of their standing and, and probe them. Have you, have you dealt with your heart before the Lord? We're not saying it's sin, but let's go ahead and let's address all such matters. And in such things, you can be assured of the forgiveness of sins. Not because the elders have come and prayed for you, and now that you've been abdicated of your sins, or excuse me, you've been, uh, the, your sins have been r- removed from you in some kind of a papal authority-like fashion, rather because you've cried out to God and you've dealt with your heart. You can have that assurance, he says. And then we come to verse 16, and speaking to the possibility of sin, he carries over. So therefore, so if you've committed sins, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, in view of that, in view of the possibility of sin, James takes the opportunity to broaden the scope of his instructions of care from the uniquely weary to the greater body's mutual care for one another. Again, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, I spoke to the most challenging part of this text in my introduction. And I hope I persuaded you at that time that this is a continuation of spiritual care now expressed through the larger church body. But what I don't want to do is to persuade you in a moment only to have you later wrestle with that term heal and be left unresolved in this matter. So what I don't want is you to hear an argument, to hear an argument to say, look, it, it, it gives continuity to the passage and it fits the argument that I'm making. And you say, yes. And then later you're coming back to this text and you say, well, that says heal. How do I understand that? How do I understand that if I confess my sins to one another, to the larger church body or to to my brothers and sisters in Christ or in the privacy of my own family context, how can I know what that healing is? How does that work? So we have to wrestle with that. And especially if you're a good student and you start looking at, well, how else is that term used? Well, you're going to have some new measure of questions introduced. So we can't escape James putting the matters of confessing sin, praying, and healing in relationship with one another. We have to wrestle through that. There's clearly a union of these matters and an application of the life of the church that's expected accordingly. So again, I want to be clear, this term for healing, it's almost always, almost always used for some form of expression of physical healing. But because it is also unambiguously used otherwise, namely for spiritual restoration, we need to carefully consider if that is a reasonable, if not best, conclusion to come to here as well. Uh, 
And before we consider the proper application of the range of this term, I want to momentarily bolster my conclusion by considering two points of argument that are not critical but helpful to consider. So first, if this is a matter of physical healing here, then as I've already argued, we need to come to the same conclusion for verse 15, which would mean either the gift of healing is an implicit requirement of eldership, which it's not. The eldership qualification passages uh, don't express any requirement for healing. It's never attached to that office. Or that it simply appears under these special circumstances in unknown but in unknown and guaranteed fashion. Because James says the prayer in faith will save the one who is sick. So does it just... Um, come up and is it manifested for the elders in those unique special moments we have no other instruction no other implication no other example that that would be the case but we know that the gift of healing again is not an elder qualification and there's no indications that elders even temporarily have this gifting afforded to them either second if this is a matter of physical healing here then again we need to come to the same conclusion for verse 15 which make the command to call upon the elders to have them come pray for you an obsolete task. In other words, why would there be a special command, a command to the weary of all people? You're going to give them a command for the elders to do what the whole body is subsequently charged to do. Now, part of the argument would be, well, they're so weary and it's such a physically distressed situation, they can't come to the church. But I would argue as a counterpoint to that, that if the church is an assembly and body of believers, it's not a physical location you can go to. And if we're going to say that it's the healing of the larger church body, the church body does that, then they can go to them as well. So I would say that, um, no, you've just lost the integrity of the unique standing of what's expressed in verse 15. Third, if this is a matter of physical healing here, then why was it not modeled by the apostles? That's a really important one. We have to be very clear. We're not apostles. The elders are not apostles. Pastors, teachers, if someone goes by the title bishop, they're not apostles. But we teach the apostolic teaching. We teach what the apostles have made clear for us throughout the New Testament. And by teaching, we also recognize that we don't necessarily presume that the experiences of the apostles will be our experiences. But we can go to their experiences and glean from it. And that being said, we have an interesting observation here that the apostles, notably Paul, did not exercise the gift of healing on particular occasions. And with this, we need to note that James frames these matters as commands for the common experience of the church body. So the elders have been commanded to pray so as to restore. Now the larger church body has been commanded to pray, to care for, more of a maintenance care for one another. And so if the, the leadership and the larger church body have been commanded to do this, wouldn't we expect the Apostle Paul to have done this as well? Well, we have a number of circumstances which we know he didn't, and we can exclude from this his own unknown physical infliction. Obviously, he, he didn't heal himself, and none of the other apostles or church leaders healed him, but we can set that aside and consider some other examples. First one being 1 Timothy 5.23. He states to Timothy, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So Paul's solution for his beloved protege, the one who was a son to him, his Solution for his physical struggles was a home remedy. It wasn't essential oils. It wasn't um, the whatever the uh, the bitter stuff that people drink. The mother, whatever virus thing. I don't know what it is. Vinegar. It was just take a little wine. It's a home remedy. Home remedy didn't heal him. Didn't even offer to heal him. Second Timothy four verse twenty. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Did he just not like the guy? 
I left him. I left him sick. Now, not having the whole story, we know this much. Paul willfully left this sick believer behind. That wasn't out of malice, and it wasn't out of lack of ability, and it wasn't out of lack of faith. And, we're not, and I don't mean to be silly. I don't want to be poking fun because I know these things are precious to a lot of people, but I want to emphasize that what James is saying is consistent within the book of James. It's consistent within the passage, and it ought to be incredibly encouraging to you. So let's continue with one final example here. And one of the, the more pronounced examples comes from Philippians 2, verses 25 through 30. Paul writes, But I regarded it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned. Received him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to fulfill what was lacking in your service to me. And I would say I believe here what we observe, or I believe what we observe here is Paul's apparent lack of ability to restore a highly esteemed friend from the brink of death. And Paul doesn't say, so I resolved the situation. He said, God had mercy lest when, if Epaphroditus died, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow. He's not saying that, well, I just couldn't execute it faithfully at that time, or I didn't have enough elders, I didn't have enough faith, or Epaphroditus didn't have enough faith. He's saying that God chose in this moment, in this circumstance, to have mercy. He doesn't always have mercy. It could have been a sorrow upon sorrow circumstance. And I ultimately view these as broader supports of a plainer argument that's best made from the immediate text. So I think those are helpful. I think they're supportive. But I would argue really the best resolution is not anecdotal. It's not inferences. It's going to James. And I took this work on two weeks ago, and I'm doing it once more today. And I want to resolve this matter for you. That The term for healed here is a spiritual restoration. And why am I emphasizing that? It's not because I have some... Uh, larger conviction about gifts and healings. That's not the issue. It's because I know if you run long enough, hard enough, you will grow weary. And I want you to recognize that this is not a Frank sick. We should have gone and laid hands on him and prayed over him and put oil on him so that he could be teaching this afternoon. But rather, those of you who are running and weary and tired, you can have resolution. You can have hope. You can have help. You can be strengthened. That's why we're driving this so hard here. And again, this term for healed a term that it's present 26 times in the New Testament. And again, the overwhelming majority of those times are for those physical healings. So I've not resolved that yet. So let's start resolving that. So physical healings, while it's the dominant expression of that, it's not the exclusive application of the term. And we see some examples of that. And I think this will help us out here. Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah was, is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they, cl they have closed their eyes, lest they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Not physically restore them, not make them feel better. That I would spiritually restore them. John chapter 12, verses 39 to 40. For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return, and I heal them. Lest they repent and I restore them. Again, from Isaiah. Acts chapter 28, verses 25 to 27. And when they disagreed with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one word. 
The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I heal them. And you might start to think, well, you're just going to quote Isaiah all throughout the New Testament. One argument would be Isaiah was quoted all throughout the New Testament and in the same way, in a spiritual restoration. But we have other passages as well, namely Hebrews chapter 12 is one of them, verses 10 to 13. For they disciplined us for a short time, our, our earthly fathers, as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our benefit so that we may share his holiness. And all disciples for the moment, uh, excuse me, all discipline for the moment seems to be not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Again, a very clear uh, example of a, a metaphor being restored. And then we see in 1 Peter 2.24, perhaps the plainest example, who himself, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness by his wounds. You were healed. You were made whole. You were restored. You were made right with God. You may or may not overcome physical ailments, but you are guaranteed a resurrection body because by his wounds, you've been healed. You've been physically, excuse me, spiritually restored. So we have five examples of healing being used to express not being made physically whole, but spiritually whole. And in view of James's context, I would argue that we do not have five examples, but six examples now. And whereas the spiritually weak and weary are to entreat the elders, calling upon them to labor in prayer on their behalf, we also see that building off of more, uh, often building off of that, that more intense expression of service is a reflection of a more common expression of a service that the whole of the church body extends toward itself. And so you have the more um, dramatic and intensive expression of calling upon the elders because you're so spiritually weak and weary, you can't persevere in your own. What you're commanded to do is to call upon the elders. That's all. However, that's the, the more extreme. That's the more extraordinary. What's the natural maintenance and care of the body? Well, you do that for one another, right? You pray for one another, you care for one another, you minister to one another, and you strengthen one another. And so it's not that, well, one cancels the other in this situation, but the more extreme and then the more consistent maintenance and patterns of the life of the church. A service that engages both mutual confession and mutual prayer. And this is not some pattern of perennial confession. It's not that, oh, here comes, here comes Andrew and Andre, and they're going to start trying to um, out-confess one another so they can be restored again. It's not the issue so much, but it's a matter of, expressing and hearing of one's personal failures and struggles and, 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 and giving a proper vulnerability within the context of the local fellowship and sharing with one another's needs and struggles, not unlike what we're willing to share regarding matters of physical struggles. You know, we're, we're happy to say, we know, I'm, I'm feeling down or I've got this um, thing that's really bothering me. I'm, I'm going to get it looked at or, or whatnot or it's, it's, it's taking me out of work. Well, that ought to be the same nature of our common discussion with one another. You know what? I've struggled to pray this week or you know what? I've just been so physically tired that my Bible study has really suffered. Would you, you know, I'd really appreciate if you pray for me and not some, tri you know, not some kind of like cavalier, oh, would you pray for me? But no, and look, like, look, I'm telling you, I'm struggling. Would you help me? Would you pray for me? And you know what? I've, I've struggled with anger this week. Would you, would you know what? I know the Lord forgives, but I need help. I need help. And so that's the nature of the maintenance of the body, confessing your sins to one another and being healed. 
So it's, again, it's a sharing of the spiritual so that the mutual care might be extended toward one another in prayer. And regarding this, R. Kent Hughes accurately concludes, mutual confession enhances mutual prayer. It makes possible the bearing of one another's burdens. So you can't just say, oh, how precious are those one another's, including the bearing of one another's burdens, when we're not even expressing our burdens to one another so as to know how to bear them. And when we do that, we also are expressing these things to the Lord. We're dealing with our heart and we're confident that he forgives, that we are restored, that we're made whole. And such is the nature of a body of believers striving toward that shared high calling of being made perfect, being made complete, and lacking in nothing by walking in the wisdom from above, a process that is both magnificent and challenging. It's very hard. I hope you have not heard for nine months that James is pressing us to be made perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And then you just walk away and think, well, that's nice, but it's hopeless. I hope you've heard that and said, I don't know how that's possible. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And I'm going to need a lot of help. Good, because we're here to help each other. And if you say, well, I've, I've petitioned the body, and you know what? The help I need is so great. I'm crushed under the debt of this expectation and the nature of my present walk and the providential circumstance of my life. That's okay. Call upon the elders. And so we have these beautiful things here to encourage and strengthen us to do what the letter has been guiding us to the entire time. And so we labor in our progress, we share in our need for mercy, and we labor in prayer, not only for ourselves, but for one another too, that we might be restored, be made whole, be healed. A necessary experience for those who are going to persevere and finish their races. And with this, James states, again, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And that's an incredibly encouraging statement. And one that James does not leave to stand alone. Whether What does he do? He goes on to illustrate just why we should expect such praying to be powerfully effective by way of giving the example of Elijah and his praying. In James 5, 17 to 18, we read, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, while Elijah was one of the most colorful and significant men of his time and has no small standing in redemptive history, he was nevertheless a man of a nature, a like nature with ourselves. He was a man, a natural man, used by God. And while in many ways he was extraordinary in his person, his gifting, and his work, matters that cannot be replicated, James here draws on a powerful element of his ministry that can and should be mimicked. Elijah prayed, and he prayed earnestly, in view of the will of God. James expresses this with a clear emphasis in the development of the statement. He prayed with prayer. In praying, he prayed. He prayed earnestly. That's the nature and the character of Elijah's praying. And that's what James says. Look at that. Look at that example and do likewise. Because you know what? There was nothing unique about him that you can't pray in a like way. That you can't wrestle and toil and struggle to pray well. And to demonstrate the powerful nature of Elijah's praying, James reminds us that it was by way of Elijah's praying that the sky withheld rain and judgment for three years and six months. Then in God's timing and for his unequivocal glory, Elijah prayed for the rain to fall again, and it did. Again, that is powerful praying. We, we're watching the, the rain this year and the, the rain all over the country, and we're thinking, it's just, it's extraordinary. And to think that a righteous man was praying in, in, in his Part of the world, it was just restrained and held back. That's incredible. But that's just a picture of how powerful prayer is. And it's not an exaggerated illustration. It was a historic fact. And James, who is known as camel knees, 
Why? From his own hours and hours and laboring in prayer, knew something of this matter as his own knees were calloused in service to others. He believed that it was powerful and he acted accordingly. And he was not calling upon us to pray so as to expect that we will manipulate the natural order of creation and great expressions of divine judgment, but to recognize that earnest, fervent, and righteous praying is unparalleled in its power. He would have us, uh, he would have been flabbergasted uh, to, to hear someone in the context of a local church saying something in the effect of hearing difficult or bad news and, and just responding to another believer and saying, there's, there's nothing I can do for this situation. I am so sorry for that. I wish I could do more. I'll, I'll be praying, but I wish I could do more. Now, don't get me wrong. James was intensely practical. We saw as much in chapter 1 where he speaks to the, the caring nature of true and undefiled religion. And in chapter 2 where he rebukes the one who passes by another in immediate need while fa failing to care for them. That's a faith that lacks works. We recognize he was intensely practical in conduct and action, but he saw nothing more practical or perhaps even more powerful than laboring, toiling, and struggling in prayer. And so it's the most natural even expected course of action that he would command the one who is suffering to pray, that he would command that the one who is spiritually exasperated to call upon the elders and for them to restoratively pray for them, that he would also direct the church body to exercise the, the faithful habit of restoratively praying for one another, and that he would draw on such a magnificent example as Elijah's powerful praying too. Now, I want to piggyback for a moment on James's example of a hero, um, don't have a lot of heroes. I think we need to be careful with identifying someone as a hero. Some people are just well-known and are maybe well-liked, but there's few heroes. And Elijah was a hero in terms of his unique role and his exemplary nature and character, especially in the example of prayer. But there's another hero I want to draw to your attention, a hero that exemplified powerful prayer by drawing your attention now to one who had a like nature as Elijah. But unlike Elijah, this man was not a prophet, and is not especially well-known. Even good Bible students, you probably pass over his name. We read his name today, and you may have still missed it. Because this man, again, he's not Elijah, he's not James, but they would have commended him, heartily commended him, just like Paul did. This man was Epaphras. Remember Epaphras, um, Philippians chapter 2? We don't know very much about him. But this much is clear. He powerfully labored, excuse me, not, not Philippians 2, Colossians. Um, Epaphroditus was Philippians 2. Also a hero, a co-laborer, faithful minister, almost died for the work of Christ. This one, Epaphras, in Colossae, again, we also know very little of him, so we haven't read from him today. Um, but uh, his testimony is that he powerfully labored for Christ's church through his ministry of praying. He prayed pray powerfully, faithfully, wrestled, toil, and Paul uniquely commends him. And I appreciate the nature of this and the, the commendation that's associated with it. And to, to get your hands around, oh, Elijah, mm, what a great example, but that's Elijah. Epaphras, though. We can get our hands around Epaphras. And so I want you to understand this. We're going to turn our attention to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, where Paul states of his own ministry, this is the Apostle Paul speaking of his own labor and service, Christ we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man, what? Complete or perfect in Christ. Very familiar language for us. For this purpose, I also labor, striving. I agonize. The, the Greek term there, literally, it's, it's the term for agonizing. It's just struggling and straining according to his work, which he works 
in me in power. That's Paul's testimony. So what does he do? Well, he labors to the point of exhaustion and pouring himself into the work of developing and discipling and strengthening the church body that we would be complete, that we'd be perfect. Same terms that James is using. Now, again, note those words, note those terms. It's very important. Uh, Something not only precious to us from James, but also to appreciate what he says later. Um, Well, first in James, so we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ. And to what end? Well, he labors for Christ's church. Now notice what he continues to say um, about Epaphras in just a moment here. But think about um, the testimony of Paul and the Acts and the epistles. He's, he's laboring, he's struggling, he's, he's being abused, he's giving himself, he's spending himself, he's sacrificially giving. And then what does he say about Epaphras now? Epaphras, who's one of your number, he's part of the body, the local body, a slave of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, always what? Striving, agonizing for you and what? And his prayers. Paul says, you want to understand the nature of my ministry and work? I'm striving. How would you describe it, Paul? Striving and agonizing from laboring, teaching, preaching, healing, praying, pleading, shipwrecks and otherwise. How would you sum that up? Striving and agonizing. What would you say of Epaphras' ministry? He's always striving and agonizing for you in his prayers that you may stand complete or perfect and fully assured in the will of God Well, isn't that interesting? He is also bringing us to the same conclusion that Paul and James is trying to deliver us to, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And how is he doing it? He's ministering on the body's behalf by toiling and struggling in prayer. I think Epaphras recognized that prayer is powerful, doesn't he? For I testify of him that he has deep concern or pain for you, for those in Laodicea and Iopolis. That's a testimony we can get behind, isn't it? That's a testimony of one who recognized the powerful nature of prayer. These are men who understood, again, the powerful nature and service of prayer. And we know this because they spent themselves in this work. They didn't just say, well, um, you're my thoughts and prayers. Or, yeah, boy, we need to be praying about that. No, it was they labored, they toiled, they struggled, they gave themselves for this. They're striving, they're agonizing in prayer so that you may be made perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And such is why we see that the testimony of the church, not only its leaders, but the church is one of praying and praying earnestly. And while true, you and I know Elijah, he was of a man of a like nature as ours. And so again, while we may not be a James, an Elijah, or a Paul, perhaps we can be an Epaphras. Reasonable enough? You know, the others, apostles and prophets, authors and, uh, of the scriptures and, and leaders of the church, but Epaphras struggling and laboring on your behalf in prayer, known for relatively little, but for having a reputation of being earnest in prayer. So once more, what has James walked us through here in verses 13 through 18? He has shown us that perhaps the plainest, but best expressions of being made perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing, and being made mature is our speech. We have walked through James for a long time. We've pressed that central element a long time. We have seen the elevated nature of speech throughout the book. And now I would argue, as we did a few weeks ago, that maturity is perhaps best expressed in our speech, and specifically speech that reaches its high point in prayer and praise. Therefore, we are a singing people, a people who affirm and declare God's glory with our words, and we are a praying people 
We pray as individuals in our suffering. We secure the prayers of elders in our abject spiritual weariness. We pray as members and care for one another. And we pray earnestly because the effectual or effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And what a wonderful way to finish this precious letter. I think. But he doesn't finish it here, does he? James has one final section to speak to a critical matter of pastoral care that also extends beyond the leadership provided by the elders and is exercised by the whole body, that of restoring the one who is strayed. So is there any point of connection here? Well, there is, and I think you'll see it even as soon as we read this. So James 5, 19 to 20, the final section of the letter. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, some of you might be thinking, I wish James had just finished on the magnificent high note of prayer. Or maybe just thinking, I wish David would just finish. Either way, but, and I would love to pause there, because I've expressed before, one of the most uh, precious engagements in terms of a sermon that has impacted me more than any other message was um, Dr. MacArthur, John MacArthur preaching on 513 through 18 and hearing the nature of the care of the weary believer. That's precious to me. And I'd love just to say that's the, it's finished James. We're done. So I'm sympathetic to that, that, that crowning finish for this letter, but he finishes with a somber but precious note of care for Christ's church. And that's the nature of a, of a shepherd, a pastor. He's, he's, he's going to drive us to our greatest, most precious high point, And then he's going to say, but there's some there's some that are going to wander and stray, and we, you've got to keep them in my mind. We don't just say, well, you know, I love the faithful. Maybe they'll be faithful one day. They're straying. We've got to bring them back. We don't leave them on the fringe. And so he reminds us that there are those who are perishing, some even who have been identified with the church as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he finishes now with the exhortation to not let them perish on your watch, not without fighting for them. And while working through this text, I was remembering an evening in December, I believe it was in 2011, it was the weekend before Christmas, and there's a lot of people, a lot of emotions that um, uh, saturate people's lives from uh, social gatherings to just the time of the year to the fact that it's colder, and I was on patrol over the span of, uh, I was on patrol that particular weekend, the weekend before Christmas, and over the period of approximately 24 hours, I think it may have been the same day, but I, I'll be generous, and I'll say over the period of at least 24, or no less, no more than 24 hours, we had two self-inflicted gunshot wounds that ended in death. And that was terrible. That's a tragic weekend for anybody. And for those of us that had to work it and deal with that and engage with that. And then we had a call out for a woman who was missing, armed and dangerously depressed. A matter that was primed to end poorly. Already had two situations that there wasn't getting to them. There was no call before the, the tragedy had already occurred. And under these circumstances, when you have someone that's missing and duress and um, armed, especially, manpower and attention shifts to the immediate need of the situation. There are also some special allowances that give law enforcement the authority to bypass the usual process of securing a search warrant, to ping a cell phone, um, to, to basically triangulate location. It's not as like on TV, or it's not even as good as fine as some of the apps now, but you get like a, within sometimes a quarter mile, sometimes within like 30, 50 yards, maybe somewhere around there. But it's really helpful when you're looking for somebody under duress. And under, again, exigent circumstances, we were able to, to carry out some things. And, it, and we had some good 
intelligence that um, um, uh, to, to, to try to figure out how can we do what we can to aid in the saving of a life here. And with all the intel that we could gather, we knew that there was a possibility that this person was somewhere in a larger wooded area near their home. And this is, again, this is at dark in December and just a large wooded area somewhere, maybe, or at least their phone was. So we potentially knew what haystack to start looking for our needle in, potentially. And what I can only attribute to God's mercy, I saw what appeared to be, it looked like just a few inches of a plastic bag, almost like ruffling like the wind would blow it, just gently. About two, three inches is what it appeared to be, ever so slightly moving off the ground about 30 yards into the woods that I happened to catch with my spotlight. And just in case there was more to it, I went ahead and called out, and I was, said, I was getting out of my car, I'm going to look into this further, probably just picking up some trash off the side of the road. But shortly after this, I found the woman, alive but presumably armed, and I knew her name from the information we'd gathered. I told her my name. My name's David. This is, you know, hi, so-and-so. I understand. I need to, I'm here to help you. I'm trying to humanize her and be gracious. Not like, oh, you crazy lady. Just, but no, just look, I'm a friend in this moment. You, you don't know me, but I'm your best friend right now. Graciously engaging her by name, compassionately talking with her, even while keeping my gun drawn and awaiting the aid of my friends. And that might sound horrible, but if someone's going to hurt themselves, they will hurt you. And so it was an escalated situation. And finally, one of my friends got there. And in the meantime, she and I were in a, a very dangerous dance, as it were, in those woods, because both of us were armed and different perspectives on life at that point, point in time. And I made the choice to put myself in that situation by the nature of my work and in handling how I handled the opportunity. Plenty of people would say, no, do it this way or whatnot. Well, welcome to the moment. <laughs> you don't get to pick. So, the, so soon thereafter, a friend again arrived, another patrolman. He provided lethal coverage while I transitioned to less lethal before making the decision, you know what? It's, it's, it's not really a good taste situation. You got woods and trees and whatnot. Don't know her situation, even clothing and all that. Um, so before it further escalated, um, I did what, uh, what I thought was best at the time, charged and tackled this strange woman in the woods. And in God's mercy, we safely detained her, removed the firearm that was in the front pocket of her sweatshirt, and she was now not going to be that third loss for that weekend. And I'm grateful, grateful to God that I was in an opportunity to exercise a dangerous, even violent mercy toward one who's on the path to perishing. And I don't know what came over after that. I have no control, no thoughts that I could know that I could reflect back to you. I have no idea. I didn't cure anything. I just stopped a moment. But in God's mercy, a violent mercy preserved her off of the path to perishing. And there's a satisfaction in being able to serve in such a capacity, especially when it goes as hoped for all who were involved. But not everyone is called to that work, and certainly not everyone should engage such a person either. That's, you need wisdom, and wisdom would probably say, get help. However, every one of you who are in Christ are called to a like work that I and many of you have engaged in, a hard, taxing, and potentially dangerous work, namely the rescuing of those who have strayed from God's truth, from the path of, wisdom, from the path of the wisdom from above. And while I'm forever grateful the Lord gave me the opportunity to rescue that woman in that moment, again, I truthfully have no idea of any enduring good that came of it. Maybe it did infinite good. I have no idea. But I know of the enduring good that, I, that can and has come with the rescuing of some who were straying 
who were drifting toward perishing, and you intervene, you forfeit your time, your comforts, your um, even welfare in different regards, you sacrifice fiscally and otherwise so that you can go after the one who's on the path to perishing. And to give our attention to this work at the close of this book is not a disappointment. It's a beautiful call to action in the exercising of love for Christ and his people. It's the joining in the work of the Redeemer and helping keep that which is his. So what a kindness that we get to play such a role when necessary. And what a kindness that James frames his final imperative, his final command in the book, and a letter rich in imperatives by way of going or giving such a precious encouragement. Effectively stating, let him who turns back the one who is straying know this. Know this, beloved, know. Make sure that you understand that this work of restoration is invaluable and pleasing to God. That's a great finish to the letter, I would say. You're persevering, you're running, you're weary, call for help. You're persevering, you're running. Do restorative care amongst the body. You're persevering, you're running, you're weary, some fall away. Go after them. And those who go after them and that do the hard work, the dangerous and and taxing work, Know this, that it's an invaluable work, restorative work, pleasing to God. Know and understand that you are being used as a means for God doing what he does. He rescues, he restores. And this is how I believe you should understand this final section of James. You cannot win a race that you have not finished. There's no receiving of the crown of life when you've not persevered. So while there are those who will need the care of others uniquely sharing their load, and while there are those who need the maintenance of care by one another, so also there will be those who must be preserved from disqualification. And this reminds me of a much more mundane and gentle experience years ago when, I was, uh, when a friend and I were training for a marathon. I think Susanna was taking a class where she's doing a marathon in this semester. I don't know, young and strong and otherwise. wasn't happening for me. Nevertheless, I was going to train for a marathon, but I was new to the regiment. I had all kinds of mishaps along the way, such as don't do your long runs, your two, three-hour runs on between 11 and 2 in July. Um, don't go on long runs and start to have a heat stroke and accidentally text the FBI. Um, Things happen, and I was just—I wasn't very good at the whole training process, apparently. And and my friend who was going to uh, participate in, in helping train me—he had a lot of race experience. He wasn't able to to come alongside train until much later. And at that point in time, my regiment was kind of locked in, and it was going to be a half marathon. Which you know what—it's better than a quarter, and better than than some. So nevertheless, so we did a half marathon. And the problem was that we were registered for a full marathon, and there's, there's procedures that you need to honor with that. And so I went ahead and I, I contacted the registration when we got to the race um, the night before, told them I'm switching over to the half, which like, you know, there's that you guys, and I was one of those now. Um, but he didn't, I don't know why, and whatever. And so his race bib indicated that he was running a full marathon which was fine until we got to a particular juncture on the course where the full course and the half course split. And there was an area there, that area was particularly well policed by race workers and volunteers who attempted to obstruct him. They were yelling at him and otherwise directing him to, no, that's the right course. You're going the wrong way. Because the moment he left that path, he was disqualified. The moment he went from running the race on the full course to the half course, now his full course bib says you're no longer going to be honored as a finisher. 
His finishing would mean nothing. And such was of little concern to him. He's an excellent runner. He's gone on to compete in even larger and longer races, dutifully qualifying with proper finishes. It didn't really matter. But James makes it plain, as to so many others in the New Testament, that if you leave this path, you may well never finish. You might not finish. Those race workers did their best to dissuade my friend from a disqualifying finish. And we need to do no less for one another. But this conclusion that we do this for one another is not a matter of absolute consensus. Some Bible teachers, commentators, pastors see this as a call to urge the unregenerate to come to salvific faith. And I appreciate that as such is a clear element of our responsibility and one that we work hard toward. I also appreciate their biggest struggle with my conclusion is that James refers to these danger, those in danger as sinners. That's the biggest problem and holdup that people have with this text. To say, no, it's not restorative care, it's redemptive care. At that point of tension, and it might confuse some of you, because you might think, well, I am a sinner. And some of you are thinking, well, I, I know they are. Um, well, what kind of sinner? Well, a redeemed, rescued, forgiven sinner. So we're qualifying it. But a sinner, nevertheless, would be our argument. Someone who struggles to overcome the old nature in various ways in life. But the way that the New Testament uses this particular term for sinner is overwhelmingly consistent. It's for the unregenerate or to reference our prior um, unregenerate condition, that which we need to be repented and rescued from, that sinful condition. However, as we've already observed with terms such as sick and heal, we need to evaluate the totality of James's letter and even more precisely how and if he used this term and others like it. And when we do this, we recognize the whole of this letter is plainly directed to believers with one exception at the beginning of chapter five in which James is publicly rebuking the abusively and unrighteous rich who have done harm to Christ's beloved. A rebuke that I would argue was less intended to be delivered directly toward or read by them by these unbelievers and more as an overt encouragement to those who are suffering, notably because it provides no call to repentance, no opportunity to be restored or made well and so we would say, no, I think that's two believers to let them kind of see into the view of judgment that comes to a, from a righteous judge toward these offending parties. Also, we need to consider James's one other use of this term in chapter four, where in the larger context, he's also referenced believers and their rebellious foolishness as quarrelers, murderers, and adulterers, which is really strong language for offenses requiring really strong responses. And finally, we need to note the immediate context here as well. Where for a final time, James engages his readers as brothers. And, and as such, he states, if any among you, brothers, strays from the truth. Now here it could be argued that he's addressing the visible and testifying church, which we well know includes some who are not genuinely in Christ. And I absolutely agree. And also acknowledge that we cannot and will not know who such persons are who are, not in, or who are in Christ in name only until the Lord returns or calls them to himself. And even then, the Lord knows. We don't know. So we aim to rescue them all, knowing that Christ will keep those who are his own. And any who ultimately and finally are never restored, we, we just have to presume maybe they were never in Christ. But that's not for us to parse in this effort to pursue and to rescue. So such matters are in the Lord's hands. And what he has placed in our hands, though, are the tools to rescue by way of praying, pleading, and possibly even other courses of action that may well put you in difficult positions. And you may conclude here, that's fine for some, but I didn't sign up for this. 
Well, you may not have signed up for it, but when the Lord drafted you into his kingdom, he also enlisted you into his rescue squad. And that is not a burden without reward. And James is exhorting us now to know this. Know that he who rescues, he who restores, he who brings them back. Know that your participation in turning one back and restoring a brother or sister is God's means of rescuing them from death and covers a multitude of sins. It's delivering them from further divine discipline, from shame, from heartache, from loss, and possibly even death itself. It's restoring the surety of their testimony without which we are left to wonder if they were ever indeed in Christ and ultimately fear for their final standing before him. And I would say that this restorative work is beautifully pastoral, and it is, but it's so much more. It's the work of the whole body. It's no less your charge than it is mine. And again, James states, no, understand that you may well be God's means of rescuing one from among us who is failing to finish their race, from compounding their lives with sin upon sin, from a pattern that we well know leads to destruction, to death. But what is the truth that they're straying from? And what is the error of their way? Well, I think the language within the book is helpful to us here. As you recall in chapter 1, James stated, Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and gentleness receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word of God saves our souls, and here souls are in danger. So might it not be that they have drifted from the clarity of the word of God? Most egregiously would be a straying from the clarity and truth of the gospel, but also patterns of forsaking the clear principles, precepts, and commands of the scriptures, thereby putting them in the woeful category of those who have deceived themselves with worthless religion, those who have exercised nothing but a dead faith, or those who betray the lack of Christ's work in their hearts. And the nature of straying is often gradual as well. So what do we do? We watch ourselves. What do we do? We confess to one another. We pray for one another. We watch one another. And again, R. Kent Hughes provided a helpful um, treatment on this, a practical approach to what is otherwise an overwhelming task here. It's not a step-by-step formula, but a good articulation of critical elements, and I've only mildly adapted this list for us. So we'll go through this as we conclude. He states, first, the act of restoration must be motivated by and rooted in love for Christ, love for his church, and love for this individual. We don't go fixing people. We don't go beating them down. We don't go shaming them. We exercise love for them. We, we not only humanize them, we affirm this has been your testimony. We've walked together. I'm begging for you. Be reconciled to God. Second, the act of restoration must be exercised with integrity. Quote, if we are to be used to help reclaim another, or if we are to be used to help to reclaim another, we must possess what we wish them to have. Have integrity. Don't be the one walking around with a log just picking toothpicks out of everybody's eyes. Third, the act of restoration must be saturated in prayer, which, as James has made plain, is powerful and effective. This is an act that God must accomplish, and it is to God to whom we look for help. You don't just go about, well, they're straying. Let me go rush over there and fix them or rush over there and do what I can. And we cry out to God because this is God's work. Fourth, the act of restoration must be prepared for confrontation in proportion to the weight and urgency of the offense. Again, if someone cut you off in snack line, you don't go, you know what? That's it. Repent now, or this is going, to, this is going bigger. And I'll give you another chance, and we're going to the whole church. Just stop the silliness. It might be a love overlook sense, okay, if that's even a sin. Um, it could be that, you know what? I need to talk to you privately, or I'm going to watch this person. I want to see, make sure there's not a pattern there. If there's not, you know what? 
we all slip and step. I, I don't need anybody telling me everything I've ever done. But if it's more egregious and more obvious, you're going to have to step up. And that's really hard. It's very hard and very awkward to look at another person and say, you know what? I'm fearful for you or I'm worried for you in these regards. We just don't like that. The people that do like that ought not to like that. Fifth, the act of restoration must be prepared for the involvement of the greater church body and ultimately the disfellowshipping of the one who is ultimately unrepentant, refusing to turn back. And this last step being the one that we pray will not be found to be necessary and we're not expelling them from Christ's church. We're just saying you forfeited any confidence we have in you having genuine testimony and being in Christ. So we're going to have to treat you like you're not and call on you to repent. And with this, I hope you're apprehending how precious and how necessary this work of restorative care is for all of us put to put to action. Don't be naive and think, well, it won't happen here. It has happened here. It will happen here. And while I'm grateful to say that I don't make it a habit of tackling strange women in the woods, I'm grateful that I was God's means of mercy on that one occasion that I did just that. And so we ought also not to make it a habit of assaulting one another, biting, criticizing, and like matters. But also, we must remember that faithful are the wounds of a friend. And there may be a time that we will not necessarily have to tackle someone from among us in the woods, but as James's brother has reminded us and made plain for us in his own final words, you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and on some who are doubting, have mercy. And on others, save, snatching them out of the fire. And on the others, have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. And with this, we conclude the final two portions of James's letter. Closing commands to pray earnestly and to both care for and as necessary restore one another. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, James exemplified such a, a sweet pastoral care for those he wrote to, but such is what we ought to expect of one who shepherds in Christ's church and certainly one who's reflecting their Lord, one who is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to sound like him. He's going he's to express like things. And so we thank you for the, the sweetness of the exhortation that he concludes this book with that reminds us and encourages us and exhorts us to the ministry of prayer to the restorative ministry of prayer that builds up, strengthens, and brings people back to a place of able to persevere well. And then to look on past that, to recognize there are some that will never call upon the elders and their spiritual weariness, that they won't, um, they won't seek the life and the, the fellowship of the body and, and have the mutual confession building up and praying for one another because they've strayed. They've, they've not only found wisdom to be deficient, or maybe they failed to cry out to you for wisdom and lack the faith to do that as well, but they've chosen another path while also testifying to being in Christ. And what greater expression of love could we extend towards such a person than to, to act in mercy toward them, to pursue them, to, to, to chase after them and beg, would you be reconciled? Don't leave this path. And so Lord, I thank you for the kindness with which this book has uh, brought us to greater maturity over the period of several months as we've wrestled through things, but especially now with its gentle and gracious landing, its gentle and gracious care for us so that we can better care for one another. And we ask that you'd help us, Lord, 
Help us to be found faithful. Help us to pray. Help us to pursue. Help us to love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.